welcome to Prio's Peace in a Pod. My name is Indigo Trigg-Hauger, and I'm a communicator at the Peace Research Institute, Oslo. My job here is to help researchers convey their work. Usually that means talking to the media, politicians, other stakeholders, and colleagues. With this podcast, that means talking to you. In our last episode, you heard Jürgen Karling talk about what research methods are and how mixing research methods can be beneficial. Today, we're offering more of a how-to angle. This is one Jürgen and I will get into how mixing methods actually works and the best ways to approach doing so. Jürgen is a research professor at Prio, where he's also co-director of the Prio Migration Center. His background is in human geography, and he's also drawn on work within other disciplines, including anthropology, economics, and sociology. He currently leads the project Future Migration as Present Fact, which is funded by a consolidator grant from the European Research Council, one of the most prestigious types of research funding, which is awarded with scientific excellence as the only criterion. And in Jürgen's case, the mixing of research methods plays a key role. So on our last episode, we talked about the what and why of mixed methods. And now we're going to be a little more concrete and talk about the how. And I think this is going to be a great resource um, for, for researchers, both who have already used mixed methods and some who maybe are a little afraid to dip their toe into the waters of mixed methods. Um, and so again, we crowdsourced some questions from people at Prio. And one of these questions was, in a world with limited resources and competencies, isn't there a chance that combining different methods could go at the expense of pioneering use of a single approach? Yes, obviously, there there is. So there's a, a trade-off there between the the value of specialization and concentration on the one hand and the value of versatility, um, I guess, on, on the other. And I think in terms of uh, the resources that are limited, I mean, that could be one person's capacity to learn or it could be the number of words in a journal article that you choosing something means you know, foregoing something else. Um, but I think... It's uh, it sh- it shouldn't be too discouraging to to realize that because it's I mean it's it's true of everything that if you choose to to concentrate on one one method even within the qualitative or quantitative uh, side of things um, you're you're choosing not to do something else and with the need for specialization that often uh, arises in social science research. It can be solved often by collaboration between people who have different types of expertise. And that um, raises a question which I think is generally sort of ignored in discussions of mixed methods, which is what is the sort of unit in which things are being mixed? Because the assumption tends to be it's the study. We're doing a mixed methods study. But as we mentioned in the previous episode, uh, even in a mixed methods project, you could have articles um, that are single method and some that are mixed, for instance. And that could be deliberate or it could be sort of an unfortunate result of, of bad planning or, or whatever. But it, it could be at the level of the publication, at the level of the project, and at the level of the person. As I mentioned, I've I've done a lot of both, uh, but often it's been only one at a time or sort of in an uneven mix. Um, and it could be also at the level of the institution or the team. And I think you know, at Prio as a whole, we, we benefit from having a methodologically diverse group of researchers. And some university departments, for instance, also do that, while others, you know, in, so 
uh, economics departments or anthropology departments are much more mono method. And that's a, a disadvantage, I think, for starting to think about, about mixing. Mm. So a lot of research proposals, as you mentioned in our last episode, um, claim that they're going to use mixed methods, and you've seen this a lot, but they don't necessarily talk about how they're going to do it. Um, so what are some good strategies for people to use when they are thinking about using mixed methods? I think the the first is really just to stop and think, you know, apart from doing both, how am I mixing? What's the connection between them? And the there are two sort of this research design dimensions that are important to to be explicit about. Uh, one is the sequencing. So are you doing one before the other or are you doing at them, them at the same time? So if, for instance, if, if it's um, a survey and qualitative interviews, um, do you first do the survey and then analyze the survey results and then do the qualitative interviews to shed light on specific results, for instance, that would be a sequential design, quantitative first and qualitative afterwards. You could also do it in the other way, um, do it the other way around, where you start with qualitative interviews um, around a topic and you use the insights from those open, flexible, improvised interviews to decide what exactly should I be asking when I, um, when I carry out this survey of 5,000 people. Um, and obviously, having that kind of foundation for making sure that you're asking the right questions can be immensely valuable. But then, um, as I mentioned, there's also this challenge that maybe you you have that ideal, but you you end up not having the time to properly analyze one part before you do the other. Especially if you intend sort of a, an equal balance between a big qualitative component and a big quantitative component. So they they um, they could also be um, simultaneous. Um, so in one one big project that I'm leading now, a collaborative project with um, with 30, 40 researchers called um, MIGNEX uh, on migration and development and policy, there we decided to do both forms of data collection in parallel. So of course, we're doing a lot of things to, to, to link them both as we go along and in our plans for analysis. But we're doing data collection in 10 countries in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, including Afghanistan, Somalia, and uh, other places that are logistically difficult to uh, to work in. So even having a sort of long time period in which to do them concurrently, that was difficult enough. So often doing it concurrently is the best solution, but it, it helps at the research design stage to be deliberate about how you're doing it and why you're doing it in that way. And then if you're doing it sequentially, of course, then it is also good to think about how will one inform the other. So the way I mentioned earlier that the results from one could inform the design of the other or the fine-tuning of the design of the other of the other, or some other kind of, of combination. Uh, so sequencing is one aspect of design. The other aspect is nesting, uh, which refers to whether or not sort of one method is nested within the other in the sense that they both um, both contain information about the same P 
people or units of, of analysis. So for instance, if you do a survey and then you select some of the survey respondents to do qualitative interviews with them, that's a nested design. But you could also, for instance, imagine someone doing a project on, on crime and then they're, they're doing participant observation and interviews with criminals. And then they're also analyzing sort of statistics from the police about, um, arrests and so on. That would be two different, uh, data sets that are not, uh, without one being nested inside the other. And uh, it's also possible to think of a kind of proxy nesting where you, where the people are not the same, but they represent the same group. So for instance, you could have, as I mentioned, we did this um, project on remittance sending among immigrants in Norway, and we had secondary survey data collected among Somalis and Pakistanis in, in Norway, and we did qualitative interviews among Somalis and Pakistanis in Norway. Maybe some of our interviews had also responded to the survey, but... Probably not, or maybe not. Mm. Um, but they represented the same group, and we used the two sources of data to sort of tell a coherent story about the same two groups. So in that sense, they were sort of almost nested or proxy proxy nested. Mm. So I think um, a good way to start in terms of explaining and justifying is to think about those two things, um, which are often self-evident maybe in the way that you've imagined it, but just putting it into words and saying, I'm doing this kind of design for these reasons, and I'm going to to use the connection or to use the information from one component to connect it with the other in that sense, goes a long way. And I'm in for research proposals in general, I think explain and justify is sort of the the mantra of doing it uh, doing it in a convincing way. Yeah, that's great advice for, for other aspects as well of research proposals. Um, so are different methods typically carried out by, carried out by different uh, members of the research team? And I know that um, you've worked on very large projects. I mean, like you said, you're working on MIGNEX, which um, has 30 or 40 researchers. You've also worked on much smaller ones. But how do you find the division of labor to, to work the best in terms of mixed methods? I think it works the best if you have... Um, people with different kinds of, of expertise, but that are all of them a little bit flexible and open-minded. So you can imagine sort of a, a metaphor of a, a river um, between the, the qualitative and the quantitative shore <laughs> uh, and the, the mixed methods project as the bridge. And then you, you will have people who are fairly sort of far inland on either side of the of the river. And Still today, you find people who have nothing but contempt for what goes on on the other side of the river. Mm. That was much more common, I think, in in the 1980s or, or 90s. Um, so fortunately, we've come a big way in terms of accepting differences also in, in social science. But there are people who just have no interest in doing it in other ways. Then there are people who can serve more as bridgeheads on either side of the river. So they have an expertise that's sort of clearly located on one bank, but they are interested in the other side and they want to reach out to the other side. Those people are immensely helpful. I, uh, I've collaborated a lot and worked uh, a lot with both economists and, and anthropologists. And I think those are two disciplines in which you have 
lots of people who are incredibly um, myopic and self-centered in terms of just wanting to do things their own way within their own discipline and not having a lot of respect for other ways of doing things. Mm. But within both disciplines, you also have amazing researchers who stand in those traditions at the same time as they are open-minded and serve as as bridgeheads. Um, and I myself, I'm a geographer, which helps in the sense that the discipline doesn't pull me in one one direction. I think that's, I mean, that's true for sociologists as well, um, that the discipline gives some some freedom in terms of combining different methods and using different approaches. So, and also in the choices that I've made in terms of what to to learn and, and how to work, I think of myself more as a mid-river pillar of the bridge, <laughs> um, which means that, you know, I can, I can serve a a particularly important bridging function, but there will always be people on both sides of the river who have greater expertise than I have um, on statistical analysis or on um, qualitative analysis. Hmm. That's a lovely metaphor. And yeah, I think, I guess what you're saying is that you need to play your strengths and really work as a team. Um. But having said that, I mean, you can do interesting things as, as one person as well. And I mentioned in the in the first episode that I think learning is uh, a good motivation for doing mixed methods, and it can seem daunting for say a graduate student embarking on their own dissertation project to to do something mixed methods. Mm. And one way to overcome that and uh, be true to demands for high quality, I think, is to um, combine existing quantitative data with your own qualitative data. Hmm. So for instance, there is a lot of survey data out there um, and increasingly it's possible to access for people who didn't collect it themselves. And if you can find survey data about the population that you're, or covering the population that you're interested in and you learn a lot about survey data analysis, uh, you don't get the, the hands-on experience of collecting or de- designing the survey or collecting the data, but you do get a lot of understanding from experiencing the sort of limitations and frustrations and, and strengths and so on of survey data. And then you can design your own qualitative data collection um, with people representing the, the same group. And again, lots to learn. Um, but in terms of the logistics of actually doing the research, it's... It's a doable strategy, I think. So often data is collected with mixed methods as part of a single project design. Um, but what are alternative approaches, um, for example, using data that's been collected for a different purpose? And we did talk a little bit about this in the previous episode, but maybe you have, have some advice. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think the, the most obvious is perhaps the one that I just mentioned, using existing survey data in combination with new qualitative data collection among the same individuals. I find it uh, harder in general to work with pre-existing qualitative data. And that actually is true even for projects that I've been part of uh, and where I've you know, been part of developing the, the research design and the, the guidelines for qualitative data collection. But when other people have done the interviews, uh, for instance, it's, uh, it's a very different experience from working with interviews that you've done yourself. But using existing quantitative data, I think, is is very often a, 
a good choice. And that could be survey data or it could be, uh, for instance, demographic data. And I, I also have a background in, in demography, which has helped me a lot in terms of seeing that potential. So, for instance, for my own um, doctoral research, I worked um, on the transnational connections between Cape Verde and the Netherlands, uh, Cape Verdean migrants in the Netherlands. And I collected a lot of family migration histories. Um, people talking about how their maybe their fathers or grandfathers had migrated and how the the family maybe had been separated and then reunited and and I had this special kind of diagram that I used in the data collection process to trace those family histories and then i I obtained um, demographic data from from statistics Netherlands who have an amazing population register keeping track of everyone's comings and goings. So I could use that combination to sort of reconstruct the demographic history of the community in a way that allowed me to sort of locate my interviewees' family um, migration history within this broader demographic history of the community. Hmm. And so I didn't do any new quantitative data collection for that, but I was able to extract and interpret um, the demographic data from from the authorities in a way that was uh, illuminating. That's pretty amazing. Um, which brings me to my next question, which is, are there any stellar examples of studies that have really nailed mixed methods? And you've given examples from your own work. Um, I would be happy to just hear more about your work, but I know that you have some some other examples as well. Yeah, I think uh, surprisingly few, actually, because it's not it's not that common uh, to do in a in a in a way which sort of mirrors the the ideal of mixing mm. um, and especially because most of us tend to publish in the form of articles and it's often hard to squeeze both qualitative and quantitative analysis into the into the same article um, and academic books um, tend uh, publishers tend to be wary of publishing books with lots of statistical analysis um, so that limits that side of it as well mm. one uh, key person in this um, realm is uh, Mario Louis Small, um, sociology professor um, in the US, who has written an excellent review of uh, mixed methods in in the social sciences or in sociology primarily, and also um, a recent book called Someone to Talk to about social networks and how people choose how uh, who to confide in with matters that matter to them. Uh, and there he uses um, a, a combination of qualitative data where he personally has done a lot of the interviewing with large-scale survey data. And he solves this issue of sort of the, the reader experience by putting a lot of the methodological information in, in appendices. Hmm. Um, but they are also really inspiring reading and, and thorough sort of explanations of, of what he did and, and why. There's also a a uh, well-known study from um, 2006 by Giordano, Langmore, and Manning, who uh, published a long article in the American Sociolog Sociological Review about um, adolescent romantic relationships and basically countered the idea that um, boys want sex and girls want romance. And they did a large survey uh, of more than a 1,000 adolescents and I think 100 or so in-depth interviews and they managed with that combination to show that actually um, boys are just as emotionally 
committed to relationships as as girls are and yeah and other other things so that's one example of someone who managed to do it in the within the frame of an article but i should say that the article is 18000 words long <laughs> which um is you know more than twice as long as most journal articles um are allowed to be mm. um Journals like the American Sociological Review tend to be more flexible. Um, one of the articles, uh, f- actually my first um, article in a peer-reviewed journal from 2002, where I also did sort of a full-scale mixing of qualitative and quantitative methods, is also one of the longest articles ever published in in that journal. <laughs> and so I, you know, I managed to do that thanks to the the uh, editor's enthusiasm and he really wanted to accommodate it but it's a it is one challenge that um within an 8000 word article it can be difficult to do justice to to both hmm. so in the previous episode we mentioned that you are working on a project called future migration as present fact and i would love to hear about how you combine methods in that project because it's been a really important part of it yeah and there i really tried to uh, take what I've learned about mixed methods over many years and apply that to sort of designing the dream project. <laughs> um, and then I I was conscious about my own sort of mid-river pillar role and the need to have bridgeheads on both sides of the river. So um, I knew that I wanted to recruit uh, one one senior researcher specializing in qualitative methods and one specializing in, in quantitative methods. And I've I've done that. So now we're a sort of core team of 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 three people and uh, with a fourth research assistant on the quantitative side, we're really enjoying that cross fertilization between between approaches. So one of the core uh, research questions in the project is what are the meaningful distinctions in ways of relating to future migration, which means how can we sort of uh, make sense of the thoughts and feelings that people have about the possibility that they might one day migrate? Because in the past, people have talked about migration plans or desires or intentions. Um, but I wanted to, to sort of take a step back and approach it in a more multidimensional way, looking at how different kinds of thoughts and, and feelings around this issue might intersect in different ways. And we're doing a, a concurrent nested design, meaning that we're collecting qualitative and quantitative data in parallel. And uh, the qualitative respondents will represent the same group as the survey respondents. But what we're doing um, differently from anything that I've done before is that we're really exploiting the, the duration of each uh, process in the sense that the qualitative debt collection is designed to take part, take place over a, a one-year period, roughly. And uh, we talked about the immense labor it takes to develop and execute a survey. So we're also making the most of that duration. So now we're at the stage where we are um, we're going to to the field for the first time in um, in a month uh, to start the qualitative debt collection with young adults in West Africa. And at the same time, start trying out some parts of the survey, not really as a survey pilot, but a more targeted way of exploring 
specific methodologies that we want to use in the survey or really going in depth on specific questions. And we also want to use some of the exact questions from the survey in our qualitative interviews so that um, we weave in questions from the survey in the interview and we use them as starting points for the discussion in this setting that's already established as an open-ended conversation. And in that way, we can get a lot more of the thinking and reasoning and sort of mental response to these questions than we get in the survey. Mm. And then when we get to the stage of analyzing the survey data, then we do have um, all this rich material around what, how did people think when they were asked these questions. And then towards the end, we're also going to use the full survey instrument um, to do a survey interview of the people that we've engaged with qualitatively over over a year so that we can also for each person look at you know what's the the rich narrative of their experience that we have from their qualitative interview and how does that hold up against the the sort of profile that they have in this framework of the survey and then we can sort of look at that profile in relation to the thousand others who responded to the to the survey wow sounds pretty amazing i'm very excited to see the results from this project and i mean so am i but i'm <laughs> already really excited about the the experience mm. and this sort of deeper mixing and and working together in the way that the four of us are doing now is uh, is just really inspiring and, and rewarding mm. so i want to talk about different cultures this was a theme that was coming up quite a bit when we were asking people what they wondered about mixed methods. And it's something that I thought about as well when I was doing some pre-reading um, and where the challenges could be in building these bridges like you're talking about. Um, so how do you tackle differences in understanding what meaningful knowledge actually is? And you gave some examples like an economist and an anthropologist or, I don't know, a, a historian and a political scientist. Um how have you tackled those challenges? I think I've tackled them mainly by working with the right people. <laughs> uh, and by that, I mean people who are open to to doing things in different ways and they prefer to do themselves or that they are most experienced in themselves. And going back to the, to the river analogy, there are people far inland on either side of the river that I wouldn't... I mean, I can maybe I can read their work and I can learn something from them, but I I wouldn't want to try to do a mixed methods project with them, and I know that probably they wouldn't want to either. So that's that's fine. Right. Um, and I think it's it's great to see that the culture has the sort of shared research culture has really changed even since I came to Prio. I think at that time it was much more of a black and white divide uh, and skepticism towards the others. Um, and now I feel that the the even if mixing itself isn't really the norm, uh, at least everyone um, seems or most people seem to be happy to be part of a community where people do things in different ways, and that's fine. So that deeper respect for difference, I think, um, has been very valuable for the community as a whole and for individual resources, researchers, whether or not they're doing one or the other, or they are mixing. So that's yeah, one, one thing, just appreciating cultural change and contributing to it and working with the right people. But I think 
it's also perhaps uh, important or necessary to be a bit pragmatic and focus on, you know, what do I want to find out and how can I find out? And if you really start digging down into the uh, epistemological, philosophical backgrounds of different types of, of knowledge, maybe you will get to the stage where you find incompatibilities that keep you awake at night. But if you're more interested in the in the substance of the of the research, I think you can uh, you can sleep well. Hmm. But even if you find your people and find your fellow researchers that you can really get along with, um, you mentioned reviewers um, and kind of publishing. And I know that you mentioned specifically word count, but there can also be um, people reviewing your work who are a little bit critical of either mixing methods at all or the way that the methods are integrated. Um, how do you deal with that? Yes, I think the challenges of publishing will vary a lot uh, between disciplines and between journals. So in some disciplines or journals, uh, you might find skepticism towards mixing as such. That's not the problem for me uh, in the sense that you know, I wouldn't find that in geography journals. I wouldn't find it in migration journals. I wouldn't find it in regional journals but certainly you know if you're if you're a political scientist or an, an economist you might find that in certain journals you will meet a lot of resistance just because you want to mix um a more general challenge might be that if you're using mixed methods and the editor thinks that well then we need one reviewer who's an expert on the quantitative side and one who's an expert on the qualitative side those two um might you know, have more in-depth expertise than you do, and they might challenge you on certain parts of your methodology. Uh, and of course, they might just have different tastes uh, in how to do qualitative or quantitative methods. Or, you know, if if they are methods, or sorry, if they are experts on their own methodology, but they're skeptical of the other one, uh, then they can also bring that skepticism to the reviewing process. And um, so those are maybe you know, risks that could occur. But I think in the big picture of the the role of sort of coincidence in peer review in terms of having to have a little bit of luck in getting reviewers who have an open mind, I think it shouldn't stop anyone from, from trying. It should perhaps make you think about which journal to submit to. But that... That's important not only for getting through the review process, but also for having a good dialogue with your or communication with your readers. Because um, when you're doing mixed, say, if you're publishing one mixed methods article, you want it to be intelligible to people who don't have much of an expertise in either side of the methodology that you use. So that means explaining things in different ways than you would have done if you're writing to a purely quantitative or, or qualitative audience. So um, that also means when you when you select the, the journal, you can think, okay, what kind of audience will I encounter in this journal? And does that mean I have to really emphasize explaining the, the statistics in a different way than I usually do? Or does it mean that I rather have to explain to these readers what qualitative research is? Because probably most of them are not familiar with it. Mm. 
in in mixed methods publications, I was thinking about this when you mentioned um, your table uh, in the last episode. You're talking about the way that you'd pulled pulled data to make a table that really helped to contextualize your qualitative work. But how do you avoid having stats or graphs or tables or whatever hijacking all of the attention because people are just going to see that graph and immediately look at it. So how do you use that to your advantage, but um, try to make sure they don't hijack your publication? Yeah, that's a, a really good question because in an, you know if you have 20 pages of text and there are three or four tables or, or figures in there, they will stand out and, and grab attention just because they stand out from the from the text. Um, there are several approaches to that. I think one is um, how you how you frame the mixed methods component of the study in the title and abstract and an introduction. And actually, in this one article that I mentioned earlier as a stellar example of someone who managed to to nail it and do an even split, um, they they say something towards the end of their abstract along the lines of the qualitative uh, results supported or confirmed the quantitative findings. So giving it sort of a, an impression that we mostly trust the, the quantitative, but it's nice to have this qualitative support on the side. Um, and of course, that kind of, of wording in the abstract um, gives a direction uh, to how readers will interpret the, the balance. And likewise, I think word choice in the in the title can also and be decisive to how people approach the the article in the in the first place. When it comes to the the text itself or the, the pages <laughs> sort of after the title and abstract, um, the one um, tempting option I think for many people is to think uh, I need to put mo- lots of interview quotes in there to balance out the the graphs and the or the tables and sort of show the the qualitative data. And to some extent, it can work. And in this uh, this um, Giordano et al. article, they do use interview quotes um, in that way, and I think it actually works fairly fairly well. Um, and they do another important thing, which is to combine longer quotes that are set out as block quotes with lots of um, shorter quotes that are woven into the interpretation in the text. It gives it more of a flow. One um, one sign of um, I think often poorly executed qualitative research is where you have text with too many block quotes that seem that are like they're just dumped there to sort of show the data. Mm. But there is a fundamental difference between the qualitative and the quantitative in the way that you you can't really show the data um, with qualitative data in the same way as you can with a table. Uh, with statistical results, because one one interview quote um, doesn't tell you all that much. Um, so it really depends on how you connect it with interpretation around it, and also how that one quote feeds into the the bigger body of qualitative data that you that you have. So I I would say yes, use the quotes, but also think about how so that you don't use it in a way that seems like a superficial attempt at showing the data in, in ways that qualitative analysis doesn't really support. Another strategy that I use quite a lot, which I think can work, is to use insights from the qualitative data to 
construct um, tables uh, with text rather than numbers. So very often, qualitative analysis results in some kind of um, um, taxonomy or classification, or you identify some dimensions or analytical levels, or some kind of um, analytical framework emerges from the qualitative data, or an empirical pattern emerges from the qualitative data. And very often, a table with text rather than numbers in the cells is a very good way of summarizing that. And then you also get the effect that it's something that stands out from the text um, in much the same way as a table with statistical results does. I really like that. That's a, that's a great idea. I hope people will take that uh, into consideration. I've used this experience of, of doing the podcast and getting the, the questions from people to really look back at my own experience sort of <laughs> with a, a data-driven perspective of how, what have I actually been doing <laughs> apart from the sort of ideals of mixing methods and try to make an overview of um, many of my publications and how and why I've mixed methods or not and how that's tied in with, with collaboration and so on. So that's been a really... Um, insightful exercise for me and I think um, or I hope that it can be uh, an inspiration for others as well to look at how how this can be done in uh, in practice and it's been very interesting for me as well uh, even as someone who has absolutely no experience with using mixed methods and I hope that yeah it will really inspire especially junior scholars to look into this and in the show notes for this episode we will have links to lots of resources including the overview that Jürgen has has made for himself and hopefully other people will also find it useful. Thanks for picking Prio's piece in a pod. This podcast is a production of the Peace Research Institute Oslo, Prio, located in Norway. For more information visit prio.org. Editing, recording and hosting by me, Indigo Trickhauger. Music by Mark Nunnall.